Hello, I'm Charles Commons and welcome to a special holiday edition of Tech Demand Weekly. It's been a great year and so in this week's episode, we're going to take a look back through the topics we've covered on the podcast since we began in September. As human beings, we're programmed for stories. The first question is audience. Always audience, audience, audience. My site is ugly. My competitor's sites are beautiful. I want to be beautiful. Main reason why we're doing this is save time. We've had some great guests since the podcast began with our first episode on how to write a white paper. The concept of the show is simple. Explore the various tactics and components of content marketing and through the words of leading people in the industry, offer advice and opinions on how we can all improve our marketing strategies. Possibly one of the most important parts of a content marketing campaign is your story. Back in episode three, Joe Lazowskis explained why storytelling is such a powerful tool. Well, I've spent a lot of time uh, speaking with neuroscientists about this, and one in particular, Dr. Paul Zak uh, in California here in the States. And what they uncovered is that there are four key elements of really good storytelling uh, that peak our brain's immersion in the stories that are being told. Uh, and that is relatability, novelty, fluency, and tension. Mm. So relatability is the sense that I see myself in the main character of the story that's being told to me. I relate to this character, right? That's why when we were teenagers, we really liked teen movies. Um, when, and when you go to see, say, The Expendables, um, you tend to see a lot of senior citizen folks, right? It's because we really like protagonists that we can relate to. Even a movie like Star Wars, uh, which is in a really foreign universe, um, have a lot of weird aliens walking around talking robots. It's well because all those characters are actually really familiar to us. Uh, Luke is essentially a down-home farm boy, right? Uh, the talking, you know, C-3PO um, and R2-D2, uh, even though they're talking bots, uh, they seem very, very human. Um, and they seem like a lot of comedic archetypes that were in sitcoms in the day. Even the spaceships uh, mimic 1950s uh, racers, which actually helped the film a lot in the 70s uh, when there's a huge nostalgia for Americana. Um, we see this in the same way in digital media. So BuzzFeed really built its brand off uh, a tactic which was writing stories for very specific audience groups. They do like 21 things that only would happen at Stanford, which if you're building an you know, international media brand, seems weird to say, oh, we're only going to target a story that would appeal to Stanford students. But if you see that story, you are incredibly likely to click on it um, to get the inside jokes, to then share it with your network, which is filled with Stanford students. And ultimately, you reach the hundreds of thousands of Stanford students that are out there. Um, this uh, the same tactic is really effective for brands as well to speak directly to the very niche audience uh, that you're trying to reach, whether it's small business owner, owners, whether it's uh, healthcare executives, whether it's uh, auditors, whoever it might be. If you craft content that is that is uniquely made to speak to that audience and to uh, tell the stories of people that are like the audience you're trying to reach and the struggles that they overcome people are very likely to engage with that because our brains are programmed uh, to respond to stories with protagonists that we can relate to. 
The second is novelty. So our brains also light up when we see something new. It's an evolutionary response to adapting to new threats that are coming into the picture. Uh, so while a story has to be relatable, we also need new elements that are going to pique our interest. Um, this is why a lot of sequels fail, right? Is because while they're relatable, we know the protagonist from before, uh, it's the same story turned over again. So our brain quick, quickly gets bored. The third is fluency. So basically, this is the idea of uh, reducing the barrier to entry in any story you're telling, uh, to writing in really simple language, uh, into, in video, not putting up a 55-minute clip of your you know, pasty old guy, white CFO, just talking into the camera, uh, but crafting a video that grabs our attention within the first three seconds. Um, most brands think that they need to write at a really high grade reading level, 10th or 11th grade. Um, but really, most people prefer to read at a second, third, fourth grade reading level. Hemingway wrote at a fourth grade reading level. Mm. So in the stories that we tell, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to engage with them. Um, and the fourth big, big key we see is tension. Aristotle described a good story as the gap between what is and what could be. Uh, and opening that gap, closing it almost all the way right before you open it again. Um, and if we think about any good story, it's having that gap between what is for the main character and what could be for them and the tension that keeps us on the, on the edge of our seats of seeing them try and close that gap, almost get all the way there, try again, almost get there um, until they finally succeed. Whether it's a rom-com trying to get the girl, whether it's an action movie trying to pull off the heist. This is what keeps us engaged in a story. And so many brands are afraid of tension. They're afraid of something going wrong and things not being perfect in the stories that they're telling and the content that they're putting out. But if you really want to capture people's attention, whether it's in a blog post, a video, a case study, you need to establish that tension. And if you look across most good brand stories, and especially most effective uh, stories overall, but also brand stories, the most effective stories use these four elements to immerse people, capture their attention, um, and make them feel something for the brand. Elise Dobson in episode four agreed with Joe entirely, but explained the importance of keeping your story relevant to your service. The Theresa May story and the other marketing campaigns that I've took off, but we can't really remember the brand behind it. They don't have relevant stories that attach them to the brand itself so we although we can all laugh about the Theresa May dancing video because let's face it it's a good laugh <laughs> it's not relevant to her brand so I wouldn't necessarily call it a good one relevancy is the only way to stop that branding element from being lost from your stories so I found a really good example from Airbnb this is Cam Cam Cambridge Cambridge Camden Camden Now, you might think they're a huge global brand with millions of customers. It's pretty hard to find stories that will appeal to them all. But what they've done is created a section on their website called Stories from the Airbnb Community to house like stories from their customers that wouldn't have been possible without Airbnb being involved. Because I was very fit and had always worked really hard, I carried on until I literally drove myself into the ground and I got something called ME. Emmy, put it simply, is your hard drive's gone or you're working on an empty battery. 
and I carried on working, just feeling dreadful, until basically my body stopped. ME is incredibly isolating. You're on your own most of the day. You can't have conversations with people. You're usually lying in a dark room. I got to a stage where I thought, if this is always going to be so, what can I do? So there's things on there like, we found ourselves when we went on a trip to wherever. But because the stories they're publishing are third party, there's no bias in there. So because Airbnb and all their content team didn't write the review, their customer did, I think that says a lot and really helps with that trust element that we were just talking about. And what Airbnb has enabled me to do is contribute meet people from all over the world who are on the whole really really interesting i can do things at my own pace i can have people when i choose i don't have to worry about the financial future being on my own and thinking how on earth can i be with this to a situation where people come to me and it gives me energy and it inspires me i've discovered a whole creative side of me there was a time in my life when I was so lonely that the wind would whistle through me. I thought, this is it. I'm never going to feel different from this. This will always be so. And this will always be so is the biggest hurdle to get over. Yeah. And I had that for many years. Yes. And I don't have that now. Once you've got your story, it's time to put that into content. Way back in episode one, Dave Howe talked about the use of white papers as part of the content marketing strategy. In this clip, Dave is answering my question on how relevant white papers still are in the present day. I've seen over particularly the last five years, um, a sort of realisation that inbound marketing is, is very powerful. Uh, now, what we mean by inbound marketing is is, uh, is you create a piece of collateral, in this case a white paper, uh, that gets put onto various uh, locations, uh, goes onto your social media, it goes onto relevant uh, blogs, websites, etc. Uh, and that piece of uh, collateral, that material, that white paper, then links back to, uh, to a landing page. That's the inbound aspect of, of this whole thing. And what they're realizing is that's extremely powerful. That's a very good way of getting people back to a, to a website or a landing page which talks about the product or service which they're trying to promote. That's, that's what they're trying to do. Um, well, I think what, what the, the ad guys in particular and the marketing people have realized is um, these have been around for a long time, uh, but maybe the, the, the channels and the mechanism to get these into the hands of people uh, haven't been around. Now, social media. How old is Facebook? Ten years old, is it? I think uh, it's just just got it. So it's sort of it's a decade old or something. Um, so before that, how did you get this stuff into into the hands of people? Um, it was very difficult. You had to get someone to come to your site, fill the form in, and download the paper. So how did you get people to your site? That was the that's what they've been sort of doing for for decades. Now we have social media, blogging, uh, loads of other different channels, uh, apps um, on, on mobile devices. So you put the material there, uh, that's where people access it, that's where people see it, and that links, links back to, to your website. That's new channel, that's where white papers are very powerful, and that's where you're seeing an uptick in um, uh, really the amount of 
papers and other other reports and other materials which are being used as inbound marketing devices. So it's not really a case that uh, my next question was going to be about how relevant are they compared to now you've got social media, um, which is according to the information that I've looked at, 94% of businesses are now using social media as their main tool. Yeah. But actually what they're using that for is is to sort of use the, the other tools available and put them through social media to get more leads. That's right. That's what that's the that's the misunderstanding. Um, I think generally in the marketplace people tend to think, okay, let's let's use social media for our business. Well what does that mean? Uh, you know, when people approach me and say, can we do a social media campaign? My, my first question is, well, what's it for? You know, what, what's, your, what's your aim for that? And it goes very quiet on the phone because they haven't really thought about it. They haven't really thought through, what are you going to use it for? You know, social media is fantastic as a way of uh, connecting with an audience. But when you want to, say, promote uh, a new product or service, how are you going to do that? Um, just putting blog posts up or Twitter, um, uh, Twitter posts, really aren't going to cut it because people read that material where's the call to action what, what are you asking them to do that's where the white paper kicks in you you frame your argument or your 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 ad or your your persuasive bit of copy uh to get people to to um to want to look at that white paper uh, that's where the social media kicks in that's what that's that channel is is for but you have to take that final step it's not simply just creating a, another facebook page or another um a Twitter feed. It has to have some kind of purpose, and often the purpose is to uh, really to, to shout about this new piece of material. You know, we have a new software application, for instance. Do you want to learn about that? Well, guess what? We've created this uh, really fantastic-looking piece of material, this, this white paper. Um, you can download it here. You can come here. You can get whatever it is to, to get people to, to look at that. And ultimately, of course, it's uh, the call to action back to a website or to, to get people to pick up the phone and talk to whichever companies has produced that material. So social media is there, but it's, it's really there as the channel to, to connect people with uh, the material which you've produced. Talking of social media, in episode 6, Madeline Sklar was my guest and we explored how Twitter can be used by businesses to not only promote their services, but also really get to know their audience. I think Twitter is great when you are part of a business, whether you're the owner, you're an employee, you're, you're an entrepreneur, whatever it is you're doing, you have a way of being able to get on Twitter and be seen as an expert, get seen as an industry leader, just by participating, just by being active and sharing your thoughts and opinions. Um, and Twitter chats are also a great way to do that, where people can see you in a whole new way that's separate from the way they see you when they go to your website. Let's say you go to my MadelineSclar.com website, and it's very static. You know, you go to a website, you just see some information. Many times it feels like a brochure. Okay, here's what she does. Okay, here's some of her blog posts. Okay. But then you go look at the Twitter feed and you really get to know this person and you learn more about them and you can see what kinds of things are they known for and let's see them do it in action. You go to my website, it's very clear that 
I'm known for Twitter marketing, but then you go to my Twitter and then you can really see why, you know, through the tweets that I post, through the conversations I'm having. So it's a really great way for businesses to elevate their brand. In our next episode, Andy Crestadina talks about getting your content seen, whether that's through using social media or your website. In this next clip, Andy goes back to the story of a brand and getting it out to your audience. If you start with the audience and imagine their experience and the flow and where they where they begin, uh, they may be in social media, in which case you have calls to actions and triggers and emotion and visuals that pull them into a piece of content. So that content, that story may start on social and end up on a blog. Uh, there are stories that are told during live presentations, which are extremely effective marketing content. And that would be you know, something that the person has already converted and they're in the room and they're a registrant for the event and they're sitting in the chair in front of you. There are stories that are just beautifully constructed, high, high production value videos that live on about pages or people's bios that tell them that, that explain what that brand believes, why it exists, how they, def, you know, they're, what they stand for, what they stand against. Uh, and those are extremely compelling uh, stories in that context. So it sort of depend. the format may depend on the source of traffic. And if you start with your visitor and where the visitor is, uh, you'll find opportunities to weave stories through their experience and never miss the chance to give that little setup of, you know, the prospect as the hero and the conflict they're trying to overcome and how the brand has helped them do that. And then the outcome, you know, like the case study, the classic case study is problem solution result. That's basically a story format. Uh, whether or not they clicked on something called a case study, or they just read a miniature version of it in a testimonial, or they met one of the characters from that story just in social media, it is something that can be injected in many places. And the starting point is always the, the where that customer is sitting in their browser or on the on their phone. I think I think we've heard that uh, a lot of a lot of times that. that whereas people say content is king we've also heard well knowing who your audience that is that is maybe even a, a higher uh, standard that you must uh, uh, adhere to uh, uh, as as part of your strategy um you're saying there that you know you've got to kind of know where your audience is actually looking to know where to then put the content it's our obsession content marketing is it's a a test of empathy and the marketer that is more empathetic with their audience is the marketer that wins. As well as creating new content, we also looked at how you can repurpose your existing content too. In this next clip, Nathan Isaacs looks at how you can choose which content to repurpose. Yeah, I think uh, sort of three things to th three big things to think about and then uh, we can slice and dice within those okay uh, so first you want to take a look at the content that you have and that's being engaged with from your audience so you're going to take a look at your analytics and maybe at a baseline that's your google analytics mm -hmm. uh, it could be the analytics from your marketing technology platforms so if you use an act on or marketo or something else you would use that and then you also want to take a look at your if you're using social media, any of the analytics packages that they have there as well uh, and see what they're engaging with. And then also you, you may or may not have this, but if you've 
it's hard work to do uh, or sort of a slow slog through, but uh, making sure that you're connecting your content into your CRM systems, uh, whether that's Dynamic, Sugar, Salesforce, and then seeing what content is being used by people that later become leads or close one deals. Uh, and so you want to take a look at all of that and then decide, you know, what is you know, your best performing pages for, you know, close one deals, revenue uh, or leads. Uh, the pages, if you're looking at your Google Analytics, the pages that uh, have the most likelihood of jumping from page two to page one on the search mm -hmm. results uh, to pages that may have a lot of traffic, but also have a high bounce rate. So uh, something about how you uh, originally built the page, you know, from how it was originally optimized is people are seeing in the search results, but when they get to your page, they're kind of left wanting and they jump back out. So maybe there's some work you need to do there. Uh, two pages that have high traffic, but they're just, they don't end up uh, resulting in leads. And so maybe there might be an opportunity to to add a call to action or something like that in mm -hmm. that sort of content. In our other episode about repurposing content, Jeff Sass joined me to talk about how his business takes content from outside sources and uses that as part of their own marketing campaign. And a lot of times the content that we can repurpose in this fashion comes from news media and press releases and other articles. So one of the things that's been very powerful for us is we use a service called Meltwater. And Meltwater is a media monitoring service. And we have it going out and searching through thousands of publications worldwide for mentions of businesses using a dot club domain name. So we often encounter press releases and news articles not about us, but about businesses that use a dot club domain. And then those articles become great fodder for content for us. I think in the article you mentioned in Convince and, and uh, Convert, I gave one example, which was a lot of fun. There was a, um, a boat club in the UK that used a dot club domain name, and they had an incident where some uh, swans attacked some of their model boats and did about $100,000 worth of damage to model boats. And that story sort of went viral in the UK because it was kind of funny to have these swans ad attacking boats. Yeah. And of course, every one of those articles mentioned their domain name, which was a dot club domain name. So for us, sharing that article and spreading word about that funny incident in the UK was great content. And at the same time, it was great exposure for us because, again, every mention of that article mentioned their domain name, which had our dot club extension. So those kinds of things, I think it's not anywhere near any issue of plagiarism. And in fact, most of the companies are very happy. Time for a quick break, but I'll be back in a minute with a look back at our lead generation month on the definition of a lead. Tech Demand is a B2B platform who specialize in connecting organizations with their customers. Tech Demand create unique and engaging specialist content which is evergreen for generating campaign success. Visit the website tech-demand.com to discover how Tech Demand can help you. November was all about lead generation for us on Tech Demand Weekly, specifically the way a lead is defined. At the beginning of the month, we spoke with Serious Decisions researcher Terry Flaherty, and he started off by talking about how he sees the traditional definition of a lead. Because leads um, of any term in B2B marketing, it's probably the, the 
most common term that has the most definitions, right? And there's the, the logical view of what we think about as a lead, right? And and what also complicates things is there's there's often a system term or a system view of what a lead is. And so if you look at, you know, many of the Salesforce automation systems, they'll have this construct called a lead. And, and so sometimes when you talk about leads, people think about the system entity of the lead. Uh, some things when times when you think about lead, it, it's more the logical view. But what, what I like to start with is to think about a lead is really basic, right? And, and, you know, it's a broad term, but if we think about a lead, typically a lead is a person, right? And, and that person, we believe, has the, you know, a business need that we can solve, and they play a role in, in making this buying decision process. And, and so when I have sort of the three building blocks of demand, if you will, right? We have a buyer or a person, we believe that person has a business need, and probably just as importantly, you know, our solution's a viable alternative would be able to solve that business need, then that combination of the buyer and, and the belief of the need and our fit really constitutes what I think of as logically a lead, right? So what are the pros and cons of that definition then? Surely a buyer is just a buyer. Yeah, you, you would think so, right? And and I and I agree conceptually the buyer is a buyer, but uh, you know, each one of those elements I talked about has a lot of nuances to it. And and so for example, we we think about, you know, the person, right? And 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 the question becomes, you know, if I'm coming to sales and saying I have a lead for you, Right. One of the first questions is, well, what role are they playing? Are they an important po- you know, part of the buying decision process? What role do they play in the buying group? You know, are, do they own budget? Do they, you know, are they the influencer? Are they the, the direct decision maker? So there's a lot of nuances around you know, what we think of as the person in the construct of the lead. Right. And, and the same thing with need. How do we verify and, and validate that this need exists and, and how important is it to this buyer to solve the business problem? And then, you know, from a solution perspective, are, are we really a good fit? Right. So each one of those nuances have to be you know, fleshed out where we say, OK, well, a lead for us is going to be somebody that, you know, fits one of these six titles and we can verify their need or interest based on on answers to these types of questions and and we want timing to be that they have a project within six months or four months or whatever the case might be so you know understanding and negotiating between marketing and sales on those key elements is really a critical thing but what but there's another nuance which is kind of interesting too is that you know as we think about our lead management process there's very often in, in most B2B organizations sort of three different key functional roles, right? And so we have marketing that, you know, starts out and gets somebody to raise their hand. Uh, we may put them through lead scoring, right, and send that over then to a telequalification group. And that qualification group, you know, will reach out and, and start the qualification process. And then, you know, when it reaches kind of the threshold that everybody's agreed to as being a sales-ready lead, we'll, we'll send it over to sales and, and sales will pick up and run with it from that point. And, and, and so in that scenario I just gave you, there's some really cr- key handoff points, right? Marketing to tele and then tele to sales. And, and so that same person, right, is quote unquote a lead, but uh, how we think about them and for the progression that they're making and the insight we have really starts to, to vary and increase as we move further through the process. So, you know, the, the definition of a lead evolves and expands at each one of these key critical points. And, and so it's really important to have a construct that says, as we look in our, you know, across our demand management process and the flow at each one of these handoff points, 
you know, I need to look at, you know, the description of the buyer, description of the need, description of our fit of our solution, but maybe have different degrees of, of nuance on the insight we have that, that allows us to pass it from one group to the other. Right. And, and so as an example, right, the, the insight that I need to take a lead and move it from marketing and lead scoring over to tele is significantly different, right? And, and often much lighter than the insight that I would use to take a lead and, and move it from tele to sales, right? And, you know, coming from marketing to tele, it may be, you know, that we're going to quote unquote, score this lead and look at profile characteristics like company size and what role this person is and what kind of engagement we've seen. And, and then when we get into the handoff from tele to sales, right, it might be much deeper. It might be that, you know, we're looking for the person that owns the budget. We're looking for initiatives that are going to occur within the next six months. And, and, and so it's really important to think about it as, as a definition of a lead. It's like the lead for what part of the process, right? What's the handoff point and, and where are we moving this responsibility for this, this person from you know, one group to the other? So, um, you know, at each point in our process, it, it's absolutely still a lead, but it's additional layers of insight. And, and we actually created, we, we call it the lead spectrum, right? We created a, a, a framework that um, allows organizations to say, okay, when I pass a lead to Tela, right, that, you know, it's going to have these characteristics and we may, it, it could be, I just, send a lead over that's a, just a name in the company, right? That's called a level zero lead. But if marketing and sales agree that that's what we're going to do, then then that's a valid lead. You know, the other end of the spectrum is like a level six lead. And a level six lead is, you know, we've done extensive qualification. We've verified deep, deep attributes like budget authority, need, timing, compelling event, maybe part of the ecosystem. And we've also scheduled an appointment for the end seller. Right. And so, you know, I, I think the key nuance or takeaway is, you know, we have this simple concept of belief, but it's going to vary as we think about different stages in the process. Sharon Murnahan of HubSpot explained how she uses a lead in her day-to-day work as a sales manager and whether the theory of lead generation is something that is always there for her. Because yes, at the end of the day, a lead is a lead and it is valuable. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the most important thing to convert it into a sale. Because look, as a quota carrying rep, your job is to convert leads into sales. But I think it's the the conversion of that lead into a sale that's more important than the lead actually being a lead. And I think we're going back to what is the value of that lead? Is it a good fit for your product and service? Is your product or service a good fit for them? And I think the overall importance of it is the conversion of the right lead at the right stage in their buyer's journey and that it solves for them and not just for me as the sales rep. So I think that's down to your sales process being very, very robust and being very, very thorough on your qualification. And that's one of the things I really like about leads in today's world is that they are so much more qualified when a salesperson gets them than they ever were before when I worked in sales in a non-digital environment. Leads that we get now could have come from a prospect that landed on a website. Therefore, our marketing department were able to track the IP address. By tracking the IP address, they were able to see who that lead was, what some particular behaviors. They're then able to generate specific marketing campaigns that will 
help those types of leads come into the funnel in the first place. When those types of prospects come in, then they are better qualified as prospect. Then they raise their hands by completing a form on the websites and then they get converted into a lead, which is when I as a salesperson get them. And as I said, then I have the ability to use technology to start qualifying. Are they a good fit lead for what I do? Um, rather than a good fit lead just for me to close so that I can gain quota relief. So it's about that conversion process and that qualification process to align more, I suppose, of the theory rather than just to win the business. During our month on lead generation, I spoke with CA Technologies VP of Marketing, Chris Borman. And in this next clip, Chris explains what happens to a lead once it has been sourced. When we run a program, um, and we source a lead. That lead is something that we call an inquiry. It's that first contact. We then use um, digital marketing techniques to nurture that lead from that first contact to what we call an MQL. And the MQL is when we feel in marketing that we are ready to hand this across to the sales organization for them to engage with that lead. And in an ideal world, um, we've got very clear delineation um, between marketing, processing it, and nurturing it, and then passing it over to sales. And a critical part in that handoff is what we call the lead score. The lead score is actually um, one of the most important alignment tools between sales and marketing, because it reflects what sales believe is needed and what sales know is needed in terms of characteristics of a lead. Um, and this includes a variety of capabilities such as the job title, um, what they've expressed interest in, what they've looked at, what they've downloaded, what they've read. There's a variety of things that go into this. And um, from a B2B perspective, um, every marketing automation platform has this concept of lead scoring. But what I've observed often is that lead scores are not kept alive. Um, and one of the things that we did and something that Serious Decisions had um, observed is that we would have literally um, every two weeks we would sit down between sales and marketing and review the leads being delivered and the quality of those leads. And we would make modifications to our lead score so that literally every month we were fine-tuning this to meet the needs of the sales organization. Because this is where alignment goes horribly wrong when, sale, when marketing says, hey, I've delivered a lead, and sales basically turns around and says, well, um, you call that a lead? That's not a lead. Um, and that's where this lead score becomes so incredibly important as this alignment tool. So anyway, so you, you, you nurture the lead, you get it to a certain lead score, and then you pass it across to sales. They then make contact themselves. They engage that lead. During that process, you are continuing to keep that lead or that person warm. And what they are doing is they are then traversing the organization from the lead that we've provided to the buying group. Um, and that's what the first sort of sales engagement is, is to qualify the lead, um, reiterate and understand that it's the correct quality, and then expand it to identify 
the broader buying group, which may be one or more human beings. And they then progress that lead through into a pipeline, into an opportunity, and down the funnel. And whilst that is happening, what we're doing is we are influencing and accelerating using either digital or face-to-face techniques, because we can help sales um, as part of a team to progress that opportunity through to closure. Um, They don't have to do it all themselves. Um, And by working together, that actually progresses it further. So ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's, It's a funnel from first contact through to closure, and it's about understanding every step of the way and making sure that when you are handing things across from one group to another, um, you've got very clear definitions that you are continuing to evolve and you're continuing to work on an ongoing basis. At the end of our lead generation month, I got all of the participants in the same room to discuss lead generation together. It didn't take long for the conversation to turn towards the relationship between marketing and sales departments. Pamela Geiter-Michaels of Avalera was keen to point out how important this working relationship has been for her. So we talked a little bit about sales and marketing, both focusing on responses or leads and opportunities. Um, But I would argue that the more important focus at the end of the day um, should be on bookings, right? Because that's truly our growth metric. And I, as a marketer, really have skin in the game and am evaluated on not just responses and opportunities, but contribution to bookings. And when we made the change to begin to evaluate our marketing team against a bookings number, that communication, Sharon, that you spoke about with uh, with sales, the communication between sales and marketing really went through the roof. And we were able to put in some great feedback loops because it enhanced that team concept um, that has driven our success at, at Avalara. Chris Borman also had his say on the importance of a good marketing to sales relationship. I think you are exactly right in that respect because listening to this conversation, there's a couple of things which I wanted to comment on. One is um, aligning sales and marketing is uh, a difficult but incredibly important thing. And if you are aligned, um, for me, what that means is common vocabulary. It means common metrics. It means common definitions. It means making sure that there is a a coming together of both sides of this equation. The other thing that um, Sharon mentioned earlier, um, and I agree with all of the comments she made, but what I would add is the need not just for dashboards, but live data that can actually be used as the uh, single view of the truth. But um, the thing that I um, don't like is this concept that marketing is a cost center. I think in the modern era of sales and marketing, I believe marketing is a revenue engine. It is a an engine that drives demand, as Pamela said, that progresses through to closed bookings. And one of the things that I like to measure my organization on is the pipeline that is built 
that then progresses to closure. Because you're absolutely right, Pamela, in terms of it's about the contribution to the business. So this entire debate, I passionately believe that marketing is not a cost center. It's a revenue generating engine. It needs to be aligned with sales. That means we have to have common vocabulary, common definitions. It means we have to have commonality of dashboards, and we have to have agreement in understanding what each part of the equation is delivering to actually drive that revenue forward. As I seem to say on every episode of the podcast, content marketing is constantly evolving, throwing up new challenges and tools. Pamela Guyton-Michaels took a look into the future and gave some advice for her peers. There are some solutions that are using AI to... um, to find lookalike leads. So I can find a list of actual customers. I can submit that list to a vendor that uses AI and they can use their AI engine to find commonalities uh, in the data um, that would take an analyst quite a while to get to. And then they can go out and find matches that we can then approach through ABM or a similar type of um, marketing strategy. So I think more of that is what's going to be coming on the horizon. And I wish that I had more of an entrepreneurial tech innovator mindset But um, uh, luckily, there are smarter people than me who are out there coming up with those solutions every day. You mentioned before about sort of listening to calls, um, smart technology you've talked about. Um, With your experience, what what advice do you have maybe for your peers for, for how to sort of deal with the future without giving away anything that you're planning on doing, of course? Test, 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 test. Um, test your content, test your, test new vendors. Don't, as I said before, put all of your eggs in one basket because wells will dry up and databases are only so large. So, um, spread your marketing mix wisely and, um, yeah, always be looking for that next piece of technology that's going to give you a competitive advantage. Don't don't be afraid to add to your tech stack and invest there. Thank you to all my guests from the last few months. You can listen to all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Make sure you subscribe or follow to get the latest episode delivered to your phone or tablet when it is released. So that's the end of 2018. It's been a good year and 2019 is going to be even better. In next week's episode, I'll be looking ahead to the new year and getting predictions from some of the people you've heard from today. Thanks for listening to Tech Demand Weekly. I hope you've had a good Christmas and if I don't see you before, have a very happy new year.